listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. I imagine many of you can relate to the daunting task of going through the stuff after someone dies. There's the legal stuff, the emotional stuff, the logistical stuff, and the stuff stuff. The clothes and furniture and kitchen utensils and sentimental items and those three boxes in the basement or garage that you can't even bring yourself to open. Now, imagine being faced with that same situation, but having this question in mind. If I could only pick 100 items to represent my person, which ones would I pick? Then imagine picking those items with the intention to create a gallery show out of them. Does that shift anything for you? Because it definitely did for today's guest. Almost a decade ago, Charlene Lamb's mother died suddenly of a stroke. Her mother lived alone in her dream house, a house filled with items big and small, and Charlene was tasked with figuring out what to do with all of them. In the face of all of this, she felt paralyzed. So she used her curator's mindset to help, and she asked that same question. If I were to do an exhibition about my mother, which 100 items would I use? That experience inspired her to create the Grief Gallery which presents exhibitions, installations, and events featuring the belongings of people who have died. Charlene is also a certified grief coach and hosts monthly grief gatherings that are open to people from around the world. Charlene and I talk about the grief gallery and what it's like to think about curating an exhibition about someone, but we also talk about a lot of other things. Charlene is the child of Chinese immigrants, and a lot of what she learned about grief was informed by their cultural beliefs. And because her home wasn't a traditional one, she also lost some of the through lines to the rituals and routines connected to those beliefs. This episode is coming out a few days before the Lunar New Year, and we talk a bit about how for Charlene, that holiday does and doesn't intersect with grief. Charlene, thank you so much for joining me today for Grief Out Loud and for making the time difference between Portland, Oregon and Portugal work. I'm looking forward to our time today. Thanks so much for having me. That's like the magic of technology and Zoom and <laughs> the internet, right? Portland to Portugal, right? Just like that. <laughs> I know, you know, listeners heard a little bit about you in the introduction, but what feels important today when it comes to introducing yourself? Like, what do you want listeners to know about you? Yeah, so I'm a certified grief coach and the curator of the grief gallery, as you mentioned. And I am in Lisbon. I'm originally from New York City, but I'm reflecting on being here in Portugal and how this is part of my grief journey. Um, as much as some people don't like that phrase, the grief journey, I do feel like it has been a journey and it is a journey and will continue to be a journey. Reflecting on how my mom lived her life, I think really brought me to considering how I wanted to live my life. And I think when people ask me, why Portugal? I have a hundred reasons, but one of them right now that I'm really kind of thinking about is 
because losing my mom made me think about how I wanted to live my life. So as much as I love my hometown of New York City, I really wanted to change things up. And that's what brought me here. When you say that you, you know, your mother's death sparked you reflecting a lot on how she lived her life and that, you know, in exchange influenced decisions you were making. Is it from a place of wanting to live in alignment with the choices she made or perhaps in opposition to some of the choices she made and how she lived her life? I would say mostly in alignment. Um, And as well, if my mother was able to look back now and reflect on having died at the age of 66, just shortly after retirement, just shortly after buying her dream house, what might she have done differently? I do want to learn whatever lessons I can from that. But I think it's just a a normal thing that we do when we lose someone significant to us, that there's first that phase where it's all about how did they die? And you're dealing with the aftermath of the death itself. And then after a while, it shifts from what I call that stage of proof of death to proof of life. And we think about, ooh, how did they actually live? That's what I want to focus on now, instead of dwelling on the fact that they have died. And then I think from there, we naturally shift from how did they live to how do I want to live, recognizing that we are also mortal. And I think evaluating all of that And I think, of course, in the last couple of years with the pandemic and being faced with so much loss that a lot of us are evaluating that, even if we haven't lost someone close to us, like a parent or a sibling or a spouse, I think we're all evaluating how do we want to live now? How do we want to live moving forward? But yeah, she loved good food. She loved views of the water. She loved fish. She loves sunshine, just enjoying life. So definitely the choice of going someplace quieter, going someplace that felt like it had more space for me emotionally and physically and financially to a place where I felt like I could experience beauty every day. That's definitely in alignment with how my mom lived. And I certainly didn't do this on purpose in terms of how I was thinking about questions we might talk about today. But as I'm thinking on them, I'm like, oh, we're actually taking a similar arc from proof of death to proof of life to how you live your life now. So I do want to take us back to kind of those, you know, the first few days and hours after your mom died in 2013. And she died very suddenly. I'm just wondering in this moment, like what stands out to you of what you remember of receiving the news? Yeah, it's been almost 10 years. So it's an interesting time to be looking back on that time. She died very suddenly from a stroke. And my mom was living in New York City, or rather about an hour north of New York City. And I was living in London at the time. We had a good relationship. And just like her, actually, uh, I have a very independent spirit. So I just remember, I always describe this as feeling blindsided. 2013 had just started. I was feeling good about my work in London. I was working with creatives. I had big plans, uh, plans for travel, plans for exhibitions that I was going to put on. And I remember tweeting, I have a feeling 2013 is going to be a good year. And then I was in a co-working space and I got an email from my aunt 
saying, have you heard from your mother? She is not getting back to me. And I think this is the interesting phenomenon of modern loss where technology comes into play. As my aunt is emailing me, I'm emailing her back. I'm instant messaging my cousin, asking her, when's the last time her mom spoke to my mom? I am contacting other people in my life, seeing if they have heard from my mother. Of course, we're all trying to call her on her mobile phone and on her home phone. And I can, if I want to, go back in time and reconstruct that because it's still in my emails. It's still in my instant messages. It was all in real time. Um, my aunt calling the neighbor, the neighbor going to her house and peering into her window and finding her on her bedroom floor. And I was getting all of this relayed to me in semi-real time, an ocean away by phone, by email, and then immediately telling my cousin the news again over instant messenger and then emailing one of my best friends and telling her what had happened. So it both seemed entirely out of the blue in so many ways. We didn't know for a while that she had died because she lived alone, was fiercely independent, like I said. So even though there was a lag time, everyone found out at once. It really did feel like we had been blindsided, or as some people describe, like a bomb went off. And just everyone knew at almost the same time because of the wonders of technology. Yeah, you're in London and it's like the, the network gets activated to try to find her, to find out what's going on. And then once you get the news that she has died, that same network is in place for everybody to find out at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of like... Thinking back on it, kind of like scenes in movies, in TV, when you have scenes of people calling around, and with that analogy of the car crash, I imagine the reenactments of car crashes as well, where I was just kind of going along with my life, doing whatever I was planning to do that day, and then suddenly this news, and everything changes. And I remember being so preoccupied by what do I need to do next? because that's the way I cope. You know, I was Googling, what do you do? I think I made a checklist almost right away. And I thought, oh, I need to know what are the funeral plans? I need to let her friends know so they can fly in for her funeral. So I also emailed her close friends very, very quickly because I think my coping mechanism was to say, uh, I am a doer. I'm the responsible one and I'm also an only child. So I knew I would be the one to do this. Um, so I jumped into action after initially crying very hard. I didn't really cry very much for maybe the first two years because I just went into action and coping and doing as my way to process what had happened do you have a sense, Charlene, of when and why or what uh, led to the emotions finally being present in your experience? 
I think it was getting things done and then feeling like I could fall apart. You know, as I learned more, you know, in the years following my mother's death about how people grieve and what's normal and the range of what's normal, certain things started to make sense. Um, that some of us are cognitive processors versus emotional processors. I'm very much a cognitive processor. I like things to make sense. I want to do the research. And I'm also very much an instrumental processor. So like I said, I you know, put together a binder. There were tabs. There was a spreadsheet. <laughs> there was a checklist. And that's how I did things. That year, part of that year that was supposed to be so great, included a trip to Brazil in that spring. It turned out that my mother did not want a funeral. She had told my aunt that, but I didn't know that. So we planned her memorial for April in 2013, after this trip to Brazil that I had already planned. And I remember telling a family friend, I'm going to go to that beach and scream and cry because I think there's something about being in a city like London, being in a city like New York, and being surrounded by family and friends who are worrying about you, I did not feel like I could fall apart. I did not feel like I could scream. And what if I fell apart and I couldn't pull myself together again? I have a house to sort out, her house. I have paperwork to sort out. I have to get things done. Um, so I really felt like I couldn't fall apart. And actually, I didn't even fall apart on that beach. I sat on that beautiful beach in Brazil, and I did not scream. I don't think I even cried. Interestingly, what I did was I danced, and it was one of the early manifestations of leaning to my creativity as a way to process my emotions. My mother in her maybe 20s and 30s, had been part of a dance troupe in New York City. And she co-founded this dance group that celebrated traditional Chinese dance, which includes red ribbon dancing. For some reason, I was just inspired to bring a red ribbon with me on that trip to Brazil. And I danced on the beach with a red ribbon and had my husband take photos of me. And somehow... <laughs> That was the expression of grief and emotion that felt most natural and accessible to me at that point. So it's kind of a funny memory thinking back to that. Well, and especially as you've described yourself as being such a planner and a logistical like engineer of getting things done. And it sounds from what you're saying that the red ribbon and the dancing, that wasn't like a cognitive linear decision. That was just something that you sensed and went with. It was kind of out of the ordinary for how you're approaching so many of the things you needed to attend to in the aftermath of your mother's death. Yeah, it's so true. I'm so glad I listened to that sense because clearly I needed to source that ribbon and actually pack it in order to bring it with me on that trip to Brazil. So some part of me knew that that would feel good. And I'm so glad that I did listen to that part. Even though cognitively I might choose certain ways to cope, there is a part of me that is very creative. And I'm so glad that it's there because I really do think listening to it 
was really key to helping me to get through those early years. One of the things that seems to happen for a lot of folks is as we're young and we're being raised by our family and our community, we are absorbing messages about death and loss and grief that we may not be very cognizant of until we experience a death or a loss in our adult lives. And then we say, oh, now I can see where maybe some of this is coming from. And curious what your experience with that was like of uncovering what are some of the messages you absorbed about death and grief and loss as a child? Yeah, looking back now, what I've described of feeling blindsided by my mother's death, it's so characteristic of how I experienced death and loss of lots of different kinds as a child. Because my family and my mom especially was not great about being able to, one, talk about death, two, to soften the blow or to convey the news that someone had died or was dying in any kind of way that helped a child to process it. My earliest memory of losing someone was my grandmother. We lived with her um, in her apartment in New York City, and she died when I was five. And she had cancer, and child me knew that she was sick, but I don't even know if I really understood what sick meant. I don't know if I understood the severity of her illness. I know that Sometimes my mother would go to the hospital and I would get parked somewhere with a book and she would buy me treats from the deli in the Upper East Side. But I didn't really understand what was happening. And when my grandmother did die, she really didn't know how to tell me. Maybe she had gotten some advice and kind of said, oh, it's, it's kind of like she's sleeping. And I remember perking up and saying, oh, so she's just sleeping? And my mother getting flustered and kind of saying, oh, well, okay, that didn't work out how I thought it would. Um, and I didn't really understand it. I do remember being very confused because people in our apartment building knew that my grandmother had been sick. And I remember holding my mother's hand and we were standing in the lobby and a neighbor asked my mother, how her mother was doing. And I remember my mother saying, she's fine. And I was so confused because she had told me that my grandmother was dead and not coming back. How could she be fine? And even then, I think I questioned my mother and I think she explained it as, well, you know, your grandmother was a very private person. Neighbors don't need to know everything. They'll get nosy and ask a lot of questions. So there was so much confusion. So to me, death and loss was something that was mysterious. It was not talked about. It comes out of the blue. Adults will lie about it. Secrecy is inherent in it. And I might need to lie about it. And those are lessons that I carried through Wow, decades. And really, elements of those, I still see it in my family. Even this year, I lost my uncle, and there were still elements of not telling people and my cousin not being told for months 
you know, my cousin and I being of a different generation, just being baffled by that. But you really do see how those patterns, how those family approaches carry through generations and decades. Are there elements of that, for lack of a better word, inheritance of, you know, grief is something that to not be spoken of, it's very private, which to me, when I hear like, we keep it kind of secret, we don't talk about it. There's also can be an undercurrent of it's a shameful thing. We don't talk about things that are shameful Mm -hmm. in a way. Is there a way in which that pattern is tied to your identity as a Chinese American and the daughter of immigrants? Yes, for sure. In speaking more recently with more Chinese Americans and also Asian Americans, that theme of secrecy comes up a lot. Um, I think there is an element of not talking about shameful things and an element of one with death, not talking about unlucky things. Superstition can traditionally be a big part of Chinese culture, especially the older generations, or even I'll just say my mom's, where she kind of straddled Western culture and Eastern culture. She had this funny mix of wanting to be Western, but also still holding on to some of the Eastern traditions and superstitions. I think it's considered unlucky to talk about death. There are all kinds of things, you know, the number four in Cantonese sounds like death. So four is an unlucky number. Um, There are certain colors. There's things like not sticking your chopsticks vertically in a bowl of rice because that's supposed to represent something related to death. So there was a lot of those kind of superstitions that came up, but I don't actually understand them because I wasn't brought up in a very traditional way. And I don't even know if my mother fully understood them. She inherited these kind of beliefs from her mother and from her upbringing as a child in Hong Kong, but she didn't fully believe them, I don't think, but she definitely still passed them on to me as a, maybe just in case we we don't tempt fate and we don't bring up these things. And then I think in terms of secrecy, there is an element of Chinese American culture and I think just the circumstances, Chinese American life and history in the US, that secrecy, as I learned, well, I didn't learn it until I went to college and took a Chinese history class because my family, again, did not talk about it. Because of the way that immigration policies happened in the U.S., a lot of families had to lie. Lying became part of how people were able to immigrate to the U.S. because there were policies that forbade Chinese men, for instance, from bringing their families. All kinds of things had to happen in terms of paperwork and changing of names in order for families to be reunited and in order for family members to come over. I, again, am learning this really from a distance. I don't fully understand what's happened in my own family in in that larger history, but I think there's something about that immigrant experience of never quite being fully open that does carry through into all of these potentially touchy or vulnerable subjects, including death, including loss. So it's it's really interesting how those intersect. 
Yeah, like the idea that a tradition or a belief can really be a reverberation or an echo, even if you or even if your parents' generation don't particularly know the details of the origination of the sound. Mm. That's such a great way to put it. It's the echoes, you know, this echo of like, don't tell people too much. Tell people the bare minimum. People are going to be nosy. If you tell people things, it might be used against you. I think those are echoes and warnings that a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants can relate to. And it definitely echoed through my family and I think continues to. Well, and then, you know, we're talking about this idea of like, keep it pretty private. Don't share more than you need to. Don't be very public about grief and death. And then after your mom's death, you become the founder and the curator of the grief gallery, which is quite a public, you know, situation. <laughs> and can you talk a bit about like, what is the grief gallery? And how how did you come to the place of creating it? It is public. And I talk about my mom all the time. And I talk <laughs> about her death all the time. But hopefully, I also talk about her life and how she inspired me to start this. The seed for the grief gallery began when I went to my mother's house after she died. When she died, she had a 3,000 square foot dream house north of New York City. And she had only bought it a couple of years before she died. She had expanded it and it was full of stuff. Not because she was a hoarder, but because she had achieved the American dream of having a career and taking early retirement and she enjoyed shopping. So I had the task of going to her house, figuring out what to do with it, and figuring out what to do with all the stuff in her house. I had to eventually sell the house because there was a mortgage on it, which meant I had to empty it. And I was in paralysis. Everything that I looked at seemed really precious. It was like the soy sauce in her kitchen, all these souvenirs from her trips, and I couldn't figure out how to let any of it go. And at the time, I was living in London, and I was working as an independent curator. So I was putting on exhibitions featuring the work of designers and artists. And in my desperation, I put on my curator hat. And I asked myself, okay, if I was to do an exhibition about my mother, which 100 objects would I choose? And I think that question, that creative brief, again, that leaning into creativity, I feel so lucky to have stumbled into that question because it got me out of paralysis. As a devastated daughter, I was in shock. I couldn't make any choices. But as a curator with a creative question and maybe with a bit of that emotional distance, I could start to choose okay, this is the story I want to tell about my mother. This is the object that would represent that story. This is the object that was really significant to her. I would definitely want to include that in the imaginary exhibition. So it was a theoretical question to start. But then eventually I did do an exhibition in London uh, featuring some of my mother's objects. And I often say now that that was the memorial I really wanted to give her because you know, the actual funeral, it was okay. A little weird. People say things and do things that are always a little bit strange at funerals, I think. 
So the exhibition that I did about her after I sold her house was, I think, the memorial I really wanted to give her and really represented her and my relationship with her. And it was so powerful that that's really what started the grief gallery, that concept. And in the years since, I've done exhibitions about grief and loss. They often feature the belongings of our loved ones that we've lost. And first starting off with my mother's objects. And then over time, I've invited people to bring in the belongings of their loved ones to be put on display, to be photographed. And we share stories about the person who died. And we share stories about the objects. Why that object? What does it represent? Why is it so meaningful? I just love that setting. I think the gallery concept is still my happy place. It's where I feel safe. Now I'm so curious, did the soy sauce make it into the 100 items for <laughs> the original curation? Not the one in London, though I was the soy sauce was one of the last things that I tossed out because it had so much meaning. And I did actually have to call my cousin in to help me throw out the soy sauce because I just could not do it myself. I did do an exhibition in Toronto uh, at the start of January in 2022. It was part of a design residency. So I did have an exhibition and I did buy a bottle of soy sauce to represent my mother's soy sauce because it had so much meaning to me. Um, all the meals that she would cook, her love of feeding people, but also all the regrets that I had about not having learned how to cook from her, the recipes that I would never learn. She was a way better cook than I am. It was really interesting to have that soy sauce there and to see other people's reactions to the soy sauce. Toronto is very multicultural and there were Asian Canadians of all kinds coming in who just instantly got the significance of the soy sauce. Though for some people, they would say, oh, it was the fish sauce. It's the sauce that you know every auntie has in their kitchen. It immediately takes you right back there. So I think that's the power of those objects, even if it's not the exact same object, <laughs> not the original soy sauce. Is there another story that you wanted to tell about your mother that came through in those objects that you selected? Yeah, because I think to your question earlier, right, about how did we go from secrecy and privacy to public exhibitions and displays? These exhibitions usually happen during design festivals. So the most recent one was in September at the London Design Festival. Part of the reason for this transition from private to public was because of my mother's own evolution. She went from being the mother who couldn't tell me that my grandmother had died, who told me not to rock the boat because we're Asian, so we shouldn't stick out too much, to eventually, after she took early retirement, she decided to go into a second career. She decided she wanted to help people. She retrained and finally got her college degree, got her master's to become a marriage and family therapist. And when she died, she was training to be a social worker. She specialized in working with Asian immigrants, older populations, and she would give talks and presentations about advanced care directives and end-of-life planning and about grief 
she left so many printouts in her home of research that she had done and then translated to Chinese for her slides. So she became someone who wanted to talk about loss and encouraged other people to explore their grief. And some of the earliest material that I had when I was in her house trying to figure out what to do, I would look through her files and there would be a file labeled grief. And there were magazine articles that she had torn out about grief. And I was able to sit there and read through those articles that she had clipped. And she had done that research for her presentations and for her work, not knowing that she was actually providing that resource for me when I was trying to figure out what to do with my own grief and to understand what was happening. This making things public, I think, is a really fitting tribute to her. It does feel like a continuation of her work in a different way. So another object that I really cherish is the degrees that she got in her 50s and her study materials for the social worker exam. I have her stacks of index cards that are all highlighted um, and handwritten. English was my mother's second language. So studying and reading textbooks really did not come naturally to her. So the fact that she studied so hard in order to help people is really touching to me. And it really does encourage me to keep going with my own work um, because it really does feel like, oh, as a grief coach, I get to do things that my mother didn't get to do. Yeah, you mentioned that she sort of started that path and now you are continuing on it. And as you were talking about the flashcards, I had this image pop up in my mind of like the stack of cards with their highlighting and their handwriting like on a pedestal as you know as you could see in a museum with a spotlight on it and a little plaque underneath saying what it was and I mean I've read about the grief gallery but it wasn't until you're just talking now that I really have this image in my mind of the contrast between when someone dies and we're like what do we do with all this stuff and there can be pressure from other people to clear stuff out, move on, fresh start, you know, give it away. Or there can be this, like, I, like you mentioned, the paralysis, like, I can't do anything, it has to remain exactly as it is. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, what an amazing opportunity to catalog and showcase items that illustrate a person's life and their character and their the contributions that they have made and the impact they have left behind. I just hadn't really thought about it in that full way until you talked about it right now. And it, it makes me wonder, like, what is the way that other people can be treating their person's physical objects in that way? Like, how can we all be sort of curators uh, when it comes to grief and loss? Absolutely. Because I do believe that we are all curators after a loved one dies. And I love how you got that visual because I do think it's a very powerful visual. When we imagine a museum or a gallery, what do we imagine typically, right? We imagine white walls, plenty of space. And like you said, that display pedestal, it's called a plinth, but it's that typically white display pedestal where a piece of sculpture might sit on it or you know, a piece of ceramics. The significance of that 
whether I'm doing a physical exhibition or a virtual one, I always talk about that plinth. It's so important to have it there. Because when you go to an exhibition and you see an object on that display pedestal, someone, usually a curator, has picked something and put it up there, literally elevated it and said, this is an important object. This says that we should pause and look at it, read the label, try to understand it, maybe walk around it, see it from different angles. Our family members, our loved ones, they were important to us. They were significant to us. And I think their belongings represent that. The belongings that have significance to us, that have an emotional charge for us, represent that relationship. So in that gallery setting, we can put that object on display and say, this is important. Take a moment look at it, really look at it. And it is such a contrast, right? To, oh, the piles, the boxes, the storage units, the garages full of stuff that we can't even get our heads around. So it really is that contrast. And I I hold a monthly grief gathering for the grief gallery. And we do this in an imaginary format. I have us imagine that we're all in a gallery and we have an imaginary display pedestal, an imaginary plinth, and we each decide what we're going to put on that imaginary plinth and we look at it together. It really is taking that time to your question about how can we be curators? Well, we don't have a plinth in our homes, most of us. And we don't have a gallery space, but we do have a space, right? Behind you, I see framed artwork on a wall. There are shelves in our spaces. There are fireplace mantles. There are spaces where we're curating, that is choosing with intention what we put in those spaces. And I define curating as essentially choosing with intention, We all make those choices every day, whether we realize it or not. I really encourage people to think about what of my loved one's belongings, what object that reminds me of them can be curated and put on display in my space in a way that reminds me of them, that helps me to feel connected to them, that reminds me of memories that I really want to spotlight. Charlene, we are recording at the end of December, which is a time of year for many people with all of the end of year holidays um, that can bring a lot up in grief. And one of those holidays, which is not the end of the year, but the beginning of the next year that I think isn't on, uh, isn't as talked about or recognized as being really impacted by grief is the Lunar New Year. And knowing that that's coming up in January and sounds like it's around the same time of year that your mother died as well. I'm just wondering, like, how has grief intersected with Lunar New Year for you over the last, you know, nine and a half years? I mean, the holidays really are such a difficult time for many people who are grieving, both the end of year period and the New Year period. And I think people tend to assume Oh, Christmas, when we say holidays, maybe Hanukkah, but really Diwali happens in October. 
typically. The Lunar New Year can be anywhere from, I think, mid-January, even into early February. And in 2023, it's at the end of January. And it's a very significant holiday for a lot of cultures. Now, as I said, I wasn't raised to be very traditional. So I don't actually know what the traditions are around the Lunar New Year. But I knew that it was very significant for my family members. They really celebrate the Lunar New Year more than the official New Year on January 1st. And there are a lot of traditions around it. I, again, only hear about it mostly through superstition. I know that you're supposed to cut your hair before the Lunar New Year, that there's something about not sweeping away the good luck. It's all very fuzzy to me, but mostly what I associate with the Lunar New Year is superstition because my mother did die in the lead up to the Lunar New Year. And the message that I got, unfortunately, was again, don't tell people. It's considered unlucky. You're not supposed to talk about death, especially around the Lunar New Year. Don't tell people. They will be uncomfortable. And that was just baffling to me. I instinctively felt that community and getting support from friends and family was so important. And to be told, no, don't tell people, don't reach out for support, just felt wrong. I remember talking to other Chinese people who relayed the story of losing their father and going to Hong Kong, again, around Chinese New Year. And they said they felt like ghosts wandering around the city because everyone else was having their celebrations, but they wouldn't be welcome because they had experienced a death. They were isolated. Again, that seems so wrong. So there are positives and negatives to being raised in a non-traditional way. One, I heard about the superstitions, but I'm not that superstitious myself. Two, because my parents did eventually decide to challenge some of the traditions, they became much more open to mental health support, to the idea of therapy. When I experienced depression as a teenager, they got me the help that I needed, which is not very typical, unfortunately, of a lot of Asian American families. So that's the upside of not having been raised in a very traditional way. The downside is I don't know a lot of the traditions that are supportive. So for instance, there are rituals. If you go to Chinatown, you might see in some of the restaurants and the stores that there are altars that are um, for the ancestors. Again, I heard of how the ancestors play a big role in how they can advise you and how you can stay connected to them. And when I hear that, it feels like I'm watching a movie because that's not something that I've experienced myself. That might as well be something from the Joy Luck Club 
or from some kind of Hong Kong movie. I've only seen it. I haven't experienced it. Other friends remember, oh, when their grandmother died, they flew to Taiwan and there was a whole procession and there was a whole ceremony for saying goodbye. And on some level, I feel some envy there because there was no real ceremony. There was no way to really honor my grandmother in a way that felt connected to our heritage. It, it's all foreign to me. <laughs> I'll put it that way. You seem to be speaking to something I think a lot about where someone in our life dies, there's the pain of missing them, that person no longer being physically here with us and all that comes with that. And then there's this absence or this void for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people of like structure, routine, rituals, known things that are just sort of automatic that we know this is what we do. And I appreciate that the grief gallery that you've created offers some element of that for people of a a ritual or a routine or some sort of structure or scaffolding for like what to do with the things, but what to do with our feelings and how to recognize those in community with other people. So it seems like it's creating a bit of what you have mentioned that you grew up not having. Yeah, because I think we are talking more now about the importance of ceremony and ritual. And we've seen how the disruption of funerals and memorials, the rituals that we do have when those got disrupted during the pandemic, how difficult that was for people. So I think there is a lot more awareness of that role and the importance of those rituals and ceremonies, especially when you're not religious. You might not have those go-to ceremonies and rituals. And on reflecting on why the grief gallery and why curating was so helpful for me, I think there is very much that aspect of one, galleries and museums kind of being my sacred place. I didn't go to church, but when I go to an art show, when I go to a design show, that's where I feel most connected to the universe, to myself. That's where I feel the most emotion sometimes. And it also makes me feel vulnerable and connected to others. So there's that aspect of things. And really, when you look at it, exhibitions and museums have so much ritual and ceremony to them, right? We can all imagine the display pedestal, the little artist label, the big words on the wall that talk about the artist and the name of the exhibition. There's a lot of ritual there. So I think that is very helpful and creating that opportunity to meet in one space for us all to gather around and look at something together, to experience it together, that can be so powerful. So Charlene, for listeners who are now thinking, I want to get involved in the grief gallery, and you mentioned your monthly grief gatherings, or just want to learn more about this piece and about your work where can people find you? They can check out the Grief Gallery at thegriefgallery.com. That links off to my coaching page, which is charlenelam.com. If you need more resources about grief, and you can also find me on Instagram. I'm at curating underscore grief. 
And you can find out more about the monthly grief gatherings through all of those channels. If you want to bring an object, bring some stories, and we can explore how those belongings can reveal so much about your relationship to the person and your relationship to the loss and your relationship to grief. Because as you said, it's so multi-layered. Well, listeners, as always, I'll put all that in the show notes in case you didn't catch it all as Charlene was saying it. Um, And Charlene, thank you again for your work, for making time, for being part of Grief Out Loud, for telling the stories that you've told us today. I'm just really in a lot of appreciation for you. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. We got to go deep. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners expect nothing less when they tune in. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Charlene, and everyone out there. I thank you each and every time for tuning in, for making the show mean what it does, for sharing episodes with people who might be interested in what we are talking about here. If you want to email me directly, you can reach out at griefoutloud at dougie.org, and that's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also our website where you can find information about our local programming, our free downloadable tip sheets and activity sheets, and all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. Our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. 